It is such a privilege for us to be able to take some time out of our week and be able to gather together to uplift our voices in praise of song to God, to express our wishes and desires to the Almighty who can be able to affect our futures. And it is important that we take some time to let God speak to us. He doesn't speak to us in miraculous ways. He speaks to us through His Word, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But I think as we start thinking about our Lord speaking with us, it's great for us to sit down and study the words that our Lord spoke. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Last Lord's Day, we began our study of this great sermon and introduced it. And this morning, we're going to continue our study and we're going to talk about delighting in difficulty. As you begin, this section is known as the Beatitudes and is a favorite by a lot of people. In fact, I would dare say that as Brother Robert was reading that just a few moments ago, many of you were probably going through that in your mind and rehearsing that. Perhaps you learned that as a child. Maybe you have been reading it recently. But the term that is the key term here is the term blessed. And the term blessed has some great lessons within it in and of itself. In fact, we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But there are eight sayings contained in the Sermon on the Mount in this section of the Beatitudes. And I will tell you that you could easily spend a lesson on each one of them. In fact, in 2004, I preached eight lessons on the Beatitudes. And I thought this morning, rather than trying to stretch them out, I'd try to really give an overview, a full picture, if you will, as we study through them. In fact, there's only going to be two points to our lesson this morning. The setting, and then number two, the sayings. Let's talk about the setting for just a moment. There are many Beatitudes found throughout the Bible. In fact, a lot of times you can preach lessons on, for instance, the Beatitudes in the book of Psalms, or the Beatitudes that are in the book of Revelation. Let me just for a moment take you through two or three in the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 1 verse 1 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates both day and night. Or you can go a little bit further to Psalms 84, verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Or Psalm 89, 15. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. Or Psalm 106, verse 3. Blessed are those who keep justice. And he who does right at all times. You see, David understood this blessedness. But again, this key word blessed is important. And as you begin to try to understand what does it mean to say blessed is or blessed are certain ones. 
Well, in Matthew chapter 5, the word that is used there is the word marikos, which means and has an important thought of being happy, being fortunate, and being blessed. For just a moment, just think with me about where we see this word. In John chapter 13 and verse 17, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, a King James translation says, If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Or you can go to Romans 14, 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Or Acts 26, 2. Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. The word happy. But I don't believe the word happy fully communicates what is being meant here. Because usually when we use the word happy, we're talking about a feeling. We're talking about an emotion. Um, If I, for instance, were to say, are you happy today? Many of us say, sure am. The weather's pretty and I'm going to be able to go do this or do that. If I say, for instance, are you happy? Yes, our family is home and we're able to enjoy all of the the uh, times together, you're talking about a feeling, an emotion. But the word that is found here is describing a state or a condition. To me, the word fortunate probably conveys more the idea in our language today. A person who is fortunate is the recipient of something good that makes him blessed. And thus, a person can take delight in difficulty. When you look at the Beatitudes, many of them sound as if he's saying one thing, and in our world today we would say, well, that's not really being happy. That's not really being blessed. But as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after he lists all these things that he has endured and gone through, he says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You think about what you go through in life. Are you blessed? Are you fortunate? Are you happy? Well, let's take these eight sayings for just a few moments and look at them. We're just going to touch on each of them individually as time permits. And we're going to notice three things in each one of them. We'll notice the requirement, we'll notice the reward, and then we'll notice the meaning. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The requirement of this is humility. When you say someone is poor in spirit, we're meaning they do not have a very wealthy view of themselves. Let me just take you through some passages. In Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, The Lord is near those who have a broken heart, and save such as has a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 17, David said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. But the passage that to me probably from which Jesus drew this was 
Isaiah 66 and verse 2, On this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. We're describing a person who stands before God not with arrogance but with humility. And what does he say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom was so important to our Lord. And we learn about this great kingdom that is promised, the kingdom being the church, and ultimately the reward in that. In 1 Peter 1, 4, an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So what's the meaning of this? Only those who have a humble, childlike spirit will enjoy and enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, the Lord was dealing with the apostles who were bickering some over their status. He had to rebuke them because they wanted to elevate themselves, and here's the way he put it. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Humility before God. Number two, verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And what he is talking about here is not just sadness. The requirement is not just a person who is of a sad character. I know there's a lot of people who believe that Christianity is something that you look at in life and you say, oh, I'm just down on everything. No, Christians are joyful. They're happy. But there is a time for mourning. There is a time for sadness And when you read this passage, you have to realize he's talking about penitence, sorrow for sin. In James chapter 4, he writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. It's not to everybody he writes that, but he writes that to the double-minded, to the sinners. In Ezekiel 9 and verse 4, God was looking for people who had the right attitude toward the sin of the people. He said, go through the midst of the city, through the city of Jerusalem, or the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations done within it. We're to be the kind of people who mourn for the sin in our life and among our people. Paul would put it like this in Romans 7, 4. O wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How this follows from the first one. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the reward is comfort. In John 16, verses 20 through 22, I just want to pull out this last part here in verse 22. They've had sorrow. There's lamenting. He says, Therefore you now have sorrow, but you will see again, and your heart will rejoice, and that joy no one will take from you. You see, there's a kind of joy that Christians can 
have because they have mourned over the sins that they have had. The meaning here is only those who exhibit godly sorrow will find comfort of mind. Number three, Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When you look at the requirement, he's talking about gentleness. The original word that's translated meek here in the New King James is translated gentle in the majority of the passages. It does not mean weakness. Some people have got this idea that to be meek means you are weak. And that's not the case. It means somebody who has now taken his strength and brought it under control and is gentle. You know, you can take some horses and you can put a child on them. They're mild. They're gentle. That doesn't mean they're not strong. But they're controlled. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. The meekness of our Lord was not the fact that he did not have power, but he had that great power under control. He was gentle. And the reward here is said to be the earth. I remember hearing a comedian talk about being thrown down in a football game and the guy told him, said, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's not the idea here. In fact, I want you to go back with me to Psalm 37 and verse 11 from which our Lord evidently drew this passage. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And the meaning of this comes out is the one who controls his behavior toward others will enjoy a world of peace. If I treat others gently, then I will be able to enjoy a world of peace. Next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled the requirement of this is an insatiable desire for right things, for righteousness. In fact, in this context, later on, the Lord is going to explain righteousness in verse 20. We alluded to that just briefly last week. But I want to point out to you, if you go to Psalms 42, verses 1 and 2, as the deer pants for the water brooks, Soul, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When you read that, don't just read about the deer thinking about, well, he's using an animal. But what he is talking about is he says, I desire to be with God, to appear before God. It's the same as he would say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord, Psalm 122, verse 1. But the righteousness that one thirsts for, hungers for, he says, if you read Romans 1, verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith into faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
you and I can find righteousness in the gospel. If I hunger for it and I thirst for it, I have this desire to be able to know what God wants me to do, how He wants me to live. The reward of it is being filled. You know, there are times, I know it's hard to believe, but some of us get hungry. And when you get hungry, you want food. You want something to drink. And then you, you get to eat. You get to drink. And you say, oh, I'm satisfied now. I'm filled. Psalm 107.9, For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Oh, how blessed we are that when we want, we desire right things, God fulfills that. And so the meaning is to hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are the two most powerful desires known to man. And Jesus said in John 7 and verse 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether I speak of my own authority or whether it is from God or I speak of my own authority. We've got to be the kind of people that really want to know right things. Next, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The requirement of this is an attitude of compassion shown in action. You see, mercy is something that starts within a person as an attitude. But then that attitude manifests itself, it shows itself in what we do to other people. Listen to Psalm 1421. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has the poor mercy on the poor, happy is he. Or Luke 10, 36 and 37. So which of these three do you think neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. You know he's talking about the parable, the good Samaritan there. And you see a person who showed mercy. One of my favorite passages of the Old Testament. Micah 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good... And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? I don't think it takes a lot of difficulty in understanding what it means to be merciful. But then the reward of it is you'll obtain mercy. You show mercy to others, mercy comes back to you. James puts it in the negative form in James chapter 2 and verse 13 when he says it like this, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Some of us do not show this kindness, this mercy to others, and then it doesn't come back to us. And we wonder why. Mercy is something we exhibit and show to others. And so the meaning is being blessed means we exhibit to others as well love for God and love for our fellow man. I could spend a lot of time here talking about the various passages where Jesus illustrated that. 
But let me just point you to a couple. Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. I'd suggest to you look at the Beatitudes and you will see them as either relating to our relationship to God or our relationship to our fellow man. In 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, or how can he love God whom he has not seen? Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The requirement of this is sincerity, genuineness. You know, as you read throughout your Bible, you're going to find many times God stressing the kind of genuineness of character. Notice Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Clean hands, what you do, and a pure heart. Motivation. Psalm 51.10, David writes, Create a clean heart in me, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Clean heart. As you think about David's sins, he recognized the fact that he had many times acted with duplicity. I want a clean, pure heart. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as of a pure heart. And what happens? The reward? A person gets to see God. That's something that's worth pondering. You know, seeing God has been a desire of man from a long time. Even go back to Moses. Remember, Moses wanted to see God, and God said, Moses, you can't do that and live. And so God passes by, and he puts his hand over Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock and passes by. But do you know Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 says, They shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads. With regard to our resurrected Savior, in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are now the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So much in that thought. Seeing Jesus as He is in His glorified state. The meaning authentic faith. When Paul wrote Timothy, there were people who had rejected this genuineness of character. And so he reminds him over and over about this. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Chapter 3, verse 9, Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. 
chapter 2, or 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. You know why Paul had to say this to Timothy? Why Jesus said this to the multitudes before him? Because it's not going to be long in chapter 23. He's going to look at people like the Pharisees and the scribes and he says, Hypocrites, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Blessed are the pure in heart, people who have the right motivation on the inside. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The requirement of this one is to make peace. Not just that you love peace. I have people all the time who are in a conflict with someone else and they would say, we want to have peace. But they're unwilling to do anything to try to make the peace. They want peace, but they don't want to make it. In Romans 12 and verse 18, Paul writes, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Our problem is we want peace, but we don't want to do anything on our part. Hebrews 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. James 3, verses 17 and 18, he's talking about the wisdom that descends from above. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You've got to do something. You've got to initiate it, so to speak. And the reward is you get called a son of God. Now when you read the word son of God, there's two or three ideas that go with that. Being a son of God means that you possess the characteristics of God. It also means that you are an inheritance, have an inheritance as being a child. In 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. In Revelation 21, 7, He who overcomes will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And the meaning is, like father, like son, when you get to the end of chapter 5, he's going to talk about loving your enemies. And he's going to talk about what you do to them. And he says in verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You be like him. Now finally, let's look at verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men 
or when they revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Now here is the requirement in this one. Persecution. You know, up to this point, someone can say, I can understand being poor in spirit. I can understand being pure in heart. But how is it that I can be blessed and be persecuted? Why would God require that of me? In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You stand up for something good and right, and there will be people who will hate you for it. You know, there are people now who are watching and listening. I read this last week that the IRS is now beginning to monitor the sermons of churches to see if they're going to condemn things that are considered to be not appropriate, like, for instance, homosexuality and abortion. If the IRS is listening, go right ahead. <laughs> but do you realize that being persecuted for righteousness' sake, if you stand where you're supposed to stand, you're going to have some of it? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you are partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Do you see what he's saying here? Don't think it's strange. If you're doing what's right, you're living right, you're blessed. The reward is heaven. And you know, Matthew, like no other of the New Testament authors, keys on that word reward. In fact, 13 times. Matthew talks about the reward, the reward. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each one according to His works. John in 2 John, verse 8 says, Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things we have worked for, that we may receive a full reward. Revelation 22, 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. You stand for God, and God will stand with you. The meaning, and I know it seems contradictory to the worldly mind, to be blessed while being persecuted. And the best illustration I can give you of this is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Talking about Moses, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passive pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. When you study the Beatitudes, the world just doesn't get it. Being humble, being meek, mourning, 
merciful, suffering for our faith. Being blessed does bring happiness. And you know, um, I think some of us begin to understand it as you get a little older. Because of what Paul quotes our Lord in Acts 20 verse 35 when he says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When you get to be the giver, you understand there's, you're more fortunate than the person who's getting the gift. As you mature as a child of God, you understand that doing the right things is being fortunate. Why not seek Jesus and enjoy the blessings? This morning, if you'll take out your songbook, we're going to sing this song of encouragement. It may be that you're not a Christian this morning and you have the privilege, the opportunity to name the name of Christ, to be baptized for the remission of your sins. We want to urge you to do that. It may be that you're a child of God struggling with sin in your life. We'll work with you and pray with you. If you need to respond, please come as we stand inside.